Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. That may have been the last shot Michael Jordan will ever take in the NBA. Here's Wiley's kick. It's high. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio slap shots we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week. Holy moly! Man, woman, and child did that! Put them in the aisle! You don't have to be an athlete to appreciate the jaw-dropping, gut-wrenching, heart-pounding drama of sport. And thank God, because otherwise, where would I be? Let's not talk about it. Instead, let's talk about an entire city banding together to keep its NBA team from leaving. Let's talk about the drive, determination, and the competitive spirit of the endurance athlete, trying for years just to break her own record. What am I going to think about? What am I going to program my mind to think about for all these hours? And let's talk about the early days of basketball, the tall person sport, when all the players were anything but. Plus, the sound design of the Olympics. Who knew there was one? Stay tuned. The Sacramento Kings have never been a huge powerhouse in the NBA. Oh, they've had a few good years, but nothing to write home about. 2011, though, was huge. Not so much on the scoreboards, but with the fans unparalleled. Here's Al Letson to tell you about it. We're in Sacramento, California. I think the city is really lovely, but to a lot of people, it's not really a destination. It doesn't have the same energy of big cities like San Francisco and L.A. Way out in a hot, dry valley, it doesn't have the natural beauty of California's coast and mountains. But what it does have is its basketball team, the Sacramento Kings. To fans here, the Kings mean a lot. Sports tradition in a small city can be its lifeblood. But last winter, the Kings owners put in motion a plan to move the team down to Anaheim, outside of LA. And as word of their plan began to spread, it sent shudders through the community. And this place hasn't been the same since. It was a growing uh, vibration that became a rumble, that became a thunderclap. Um, and it really started to look like they could very well leave. That's Carmichael Dave, the local sports radio personality at KHTK and a die-hard Kings fan since he was a kid. Now, you gotta remember, the NBA is a business, and things like luxury boxes in modern arenas are big revenue generators. The Kings' home is pretty outdated, so the Maloof brothers, the owners of the Kings, wanted a new arena, but Sacramento had never been able to raise the money. Now, there'd been rumors of a move for years, but last year's scare was different. Dave remembers getting off work one day in the middle of the season and going out to relax on his backyard patio. And uh, I was uh, smoking a Marlboro Ultralight, just draining away the day. And I see across my phone a, a tweet. It was a news item saying that the Anaheim City Council had voted five to zero to approve funding to lure the Kings to their arena. So I, I look at my phone and 
kind of tongue-in-cheek and also a little upset, say Carmichael Dave votes one nothing to authorize $200 out of his own pocket to make a new arena for Sacramento, who's with me. That was it. One tweet. It wasn't an organized campaign, just a shout-out to the ether that tapped into something huge, a force that Dave never imagined. Within an hour, I've got about $20,000 raised online, all in donations of 10, 20, 50, and maybe $100. Within two hours, Jiffy Lube had pledged $30,000 and offered up their digital billboards around town for messages about the Kings. By the time Dave went to bed, there was $80,000 pledged online. By the time I wake up in the morning and go through my tweets, uh, we're almost at a quarter million. And the news, I mean, my wife, woke me up. She had been taping uh, all the different morning shows that had reports on what was happening. And that tweet I sent out, in a sense, was the spark that ignited this city. And this wasn't the only Keep the Kings movement spreading through town. Here We Stay was another Twitter campaign started by an unassuming local Kings blogger named Blake Ellington. I do uh, King's blog at uh, bleedblackandpurple.blogspot.com. Blake had decided in February to try to sell out a King's home game against the Clippers. And to be honest, it was a middle-of-the-season game between two teams going nowhere. Not exactly a big draw. No, I mean, we, we had two weeks to do it. I mean, attendance had been around 13,000 for the most part of the season. So the building holds about 17.5. So we knew we had, we, had a, we had a task ahead of us. Blake and some of the other bloggers pushed hard, tweeting non-stop, and they sold out the game. The Maloof brothers even showed up to watch, something that rarely ever happens. Blake had another trick up his sleeve. He handed out flyers all around the arena, telling fans to chant at certain times during the game. At the end of the first quarter, chant this. First time the other team goes to the free throw line, chant this. Then Blake started sending out instructions over Twitter, and the whole stadium responded in real time chanting, here we stay, over and over. The fact that, you know, we were controlling, you know, chants of 17,000 people through Twitter was just, <laughs> you know, if one wasn't working, we'd be like, okay, on Twitter, we'd be like, let's do this one, and, you know, at the two-minute mark, and all of a sudden, it would just go nuts. And you just, <laughs> it was just an amazing thing to see. All of Sacramento seemed to catch the fever. One Friday, wearing King's purple was the big thing. Carmichael Dave. Newscasters, you know, wore purple suits and dresses and blouses. And the, the lights downtown were changed to a purple hue. The fountains were dyed purple. The uh, ice cream shops served purple colored ice cream. The bars had purple drinks all over the place. The season was drawing to a close, and still there was no word from the Maloofs. The final game was at home against the LA Lakers. The night before, on the television show Inside the NBA, former Kings great Chris Webber made a spur-of-the-moment confession. He was jumping on the bandwagon too. I know everyone thinks that the team is gone, but I'm doing all I can to keep the team there. I may sound like a fool on national TV. Can it happen? Will it happen? I don't know, and it's probably a gone ship anyway. But even if that ship is leaving the shore, I got an anchor and some people. The final game of the season finally arrived, April 13th. It was such an emotional day. 
you know, all day long, everybody had been counting down, people calling in favors, trying to get tickets. Not only was it the last game of the year, not only was it against the hated Lakers, it was the last game uh, ever. It was a good game. The Kings rallied in the final minutes, but in heartbreaking style that people here are now used to, they lost. The fans had to face reality. Now they cheered during the game and they had fun and they forgot about it for a few hours. But once that buzzer sounded, there was this palpable aura of desperation and fear that came down over the 17,000 plus people. Nobody wanted to leave. People were in tears in the stands. For over an hour, fans stayed behind, chanting, waiting, hoping. And Grant Napier and Jerry Reynolds, longtime announcers for the Kings, struggled through their final sign-off as fans chanted Grant and Jerry behind them. Jerry, uh, all I can say to you is thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> we'll try to make it off the air. Well, I'll tell you. Um, let me catch my breath here. There's a lot of uncertainty, as we all know. Uh, but the one thing that we do know is the love affair between this team and this city. And tonight, we say so long with the music from Sacramento's legendary rock band, Tesla, and iconic memories from the Sacramento Kings. Carmichael Dave didn't see that sign off until he watched the tape when he got home that night. I, I cried like I haven't cried since I was a child, sobbing. I couldn't catch my breath. I, uh, I couldn't pull it together. I, it was, and I, and I, I promise you that people listening to this right now in Sacramento are going to listen to my voice and say, so did I. I did the same thing. I got to tell you, when I saw the clip of Jerry and Grant, it got me too. I mean, and I, I'm not even a Kings fan. But I am a sports fan who lives in a small market, and if my NFL team left, like the rumors are always saying it will, I'd be heartbroken. It'd be like losing family. And Sacramento just couldn't take a hit like this. Sacramento doesn't have a lot. We're, at, we're the capital of California, and we have an NBA team. You know, Anaheim didn't need a win. Anaheim has Disneyland. They have Orange County. They have the beaches. Sacramento... Man, Sacramento sucks. You know, and I'm born and raised here, and I'll probably die here, but there's so much about Sacramento that's just, it's not there right now. But the fight wasn't over. After the last game, Sacramento's mayor, Kevin Johnson, stepped up. Now, he's no ordinary mayor. He's a former NBA player himself, born and raised here, which made it even more frustrating for people that he couldn't put together a deal to keep the Kings. But the mayor had been working hard behind the scenes, using his connections in the NBA. I called the commissioner up and said, I would at least like to go speak to the NBA governing board if you would allow me to do that. Mayor Johnson flew to New York to make his case and even found Kings fans waiting for him there, 3,000 miles from home. You had fans in New York that were at the hotel encouraging me, fight, mayor, fight, don't let them take our Kings. After a few weeks of rumors, speculation, and negotiations, just a few hours before the deadline to request relocation, the Maloofs announced a decision that shocked everyone. They would stay and give Sacramento one more season to finance a new arena. They attributed their decision not to dollars and cents. It wasn't the smart thing financially, but to blind faith, something they seemed to have picked up from Kings fans. In Sacramento, it was party time. 
We had 10,000 people packed Cesar Chavez Park downtown for this rally. And we had the Maloof brothers there and the mayor there hugging on stage and uh, former and current Kings players and everything happened. It was so great. It was just this huge love fest. But for the city and the fans, the real work is just beginning. They only have until March to present a workable plan for a new arena. Carmichael Dave thinks it's about a 50-50 shot and he's determined to keep the momentum going. No matter what happens next year though, Sacramento won't forget this magical season. Even though the team itself didn't have a winning record, the fans still gotta win. There are gonna be a lot of lifelong friends, some marriages, some children produced in this world, all coming from this movement to save this team. It's, it's funny what brings us together. Sacramento Kings was presented by Al Letson and produced by Laura Starcheski for State of the Reunion, a public radio show that explores American cities through story. For a link to their website, visit ours at thirdcoastfestival.org. Pro basketball is a big business, really big, in the billions. And at the center of it all are the athletes, giant men, exquisite competitors, paid millions. But the sport that draws tens of thousands to every game and millions more on TV wasn't always so flash. In fact, it was barely even a spark. No millions, no crowds, and definitely a lot less height. Here's Joe Richman. Just outside Fort Lauderdale, Florida, in a mall on Oakland Park Boulevard, there's a little breakfast spot called Bagels and Locks. Most mornings, it's a quiet place, but every Tuesday, a group of men in their 70s and 80s gather around a large table with coffee, hash browns, old photographs, and newspaper clippings. It's the weekly breakfast of the South Florida basketball fraternity, and every Tuesday morning starts off with a quiz. All right, give me the Duquesne team of 1938. Widowitz, Debna, and Kasperic. Who did Judge Crater play for? Wait a minute. He played for Boston seven games. Nobody said Boston. We said Syracuse. There are about 20 men at the table, all ex-basketball players and all from New York City. Jack Shaber is the official keeper of the archives. And there's Jack Kleinman, who played with the St. John's College Wonder Five in 1930. At the other end of the table is High Gotkin, known as Mighty Might, an All-American in the mid-30s, and right next to him is Ossie Sheckman. As a member of the New York Knickerbockers in 1946, Sheckman scored the first ever basket in the NBA. Well, it was a, it was a simple give and go. It was one of those fast breaks, passed the ball, went to the basket, got a return pass. It's in the record book, and I was fortunate to score the first two points in NBA history. Looks exactly like he did when he played for St. John's. <laughs> Back when Ossie Sheckman made that first basket, the game wasn't nearly as popular around the country as it would soon become. There were college games and semi-pro barnstorming teams, but basketball was still mostly an inner-city game played by children of immigrants. Former New York Knickerbockers Sonny Hertzberg and Nat Milicak remember that almost every Jewish kid in New York in the 30s and 40s played basketball. We used to fill a stocking hat with paper and pass it, there was no dribbling, and shoot it through the rungs of a fire escape ladder. 
I never saw a dirt field. Everything was cement. And the only, the only thing we can do, we had, we had two choices. Either go in the, in the schoolyard and play ball or hang around the corner and get in trouble. So we played basketball all our, all our lives. Growing up, none of them ever thought that basketball could be a full-time occupation. But in the summer of 1946, word went out that a new professional basketball league was forming. Ralph Kaplowitz still has the yellow crinkled piece of paper that brought him the news. In August of 1946, I received this telegram in which it said, interested in having you play with New York professional basketball team next season, please telephone me. The team was the New York Knickerbockers. Scribbled in pencil on Kaplowitz's telegram are a bunch of numbers, a four with three zeros, an eight with three more zeros. This may have been the first salary negotiation in NBA history. And at the bottom is the amount Kaplowitz would end up being paid for the season, $6,500. Frankly, if someone would have taken care of our family, we would have played the game for nothing. Basketball makes its debut in Toronto as the New York Knickerbockers and the Toronto Huskies' white jerseys tangled. The season opened on a Friday night, November 1st, 1946, with the New York Knicks visiting the Toronto Huskies. At the beginning, the starting five was Kaplowitz and Hertzberg and Gottlieb, Ossie Sheckman, and the center. At the beginning was Jake Weber. After the tip-off, the play went from one player to another, to another player, to another player. Of course, I didn't remember it until I saw it on the, on the video. And they show number four, giving them a pass underneath to lay up the ball. Well, number four happened to be me. So now I got the first assist. Now my wife is sitting there and says, you dummy, why didn't you shoot the ball? <laughs> the Huskies go down the court to score again. But despite the comeback, New York scores this basket to win 68-66. to In the first half of this century, basketball was considered a sport for small athletes, with quick weaves, quick ball handling, and the steady two-handed set shot. A very different game than the one played today. We, have, we have never had anyone dunk a ball. Do you know why? Because if you touched the rim, it was a technical foul. In those days, we didn't know about the one-handed shot. We all shot two hands. This is what everybody did. We shot two hands. And you certainly didn't take no, uh, no jump shots. There was no such thing as a jump shot. You took a jump shot, you would be, you would be, you would be sitting with, next to the coach. There were 11 teams that first year including the Boston Celtics, the Philadelphia Warriors, the Providence Steamrollers, the Washington Capitals, the Chicago Stags, and the St. Louis Bombers. For Sonny Hertzberg, it was a long way from the neighborhood playground. The newspapers called the NBA a major sport. You became a celebrity all of a sudden. There were kids out there with their parents, with programs looking for autographs. It was a new experience for all of us. The Knicks season started well. They were winning games. Sonny Hertzberg was the team's leading scorer. The home crowds were growing. But on the road, the Knicks began having some problems. This was 1946, a time when Jews were effectively barred from many clubs and universities. And with names like Kaplowitz, Hertzberg, Schechtman, Rosenstein, and Gottlieb, fans started to identify the Knicks as a Jewish team. Playing in Pittsburgh, and I, as I came out on the floor, I heard him saying, east side, west side, here comes the Jews from New York. When there were comments by the fans by yelling, Abe, throw the ball to Abe, or Abe, throw the ball to Abe, that perhaps Neil Kohalan, our coach, didn't like what was going on, 
and might have mentioned it to management. I think they, there was a conscious effort on the part of Madison Square Garden to get rid of the Jewish ballplayers. Next thing I knew, after half the season went by, I was traded to the Philadelphia Warriors. It was just too much and I, I just lost interest. I, physically, I, I, I think I could have played, but I lost my desire to play after, at that time. I was the only Jewish ball player left at the end of the season. That's because you were a good shooter. <laughs> Thank you. Over the next year, trading players, for all kinds of reasons, became more common. And soon, each city had fewer and fewer local ball players. By the time the second season started, not one of the original starting five was still playing with the New York Knickerbockers. Ralph Kaplowitz spent one more year with the Philadelphia Warriors and then went into the insurance business. Sonny Hertzberg joined the Washington Capitals. He then played another two years with the Boston Celtics before becoming an optician. Nat Milicak went back to college and then to law school. And Ossie Schechtman, who scored the first basket in the NBA, left the league after the first season to work in the garment industry. That's it. Ralph Kaplowitz and Sonny Hertzberg still see each other at least once a week. And on very rare occasions, Kaplowitz brings a ball. A little Watch higher, Maya. <laughs> Good. They shoot a couple baskets, and then Kaplowitz pulls out his scrapbook. Newspaper clippings, box scores, and photos from their first year with the New York Knicks. Chicago Stags. Yeah. They beat us 78 to 68. Look at the box score. How'd I do? Hertzberg, 19 points. You were the high scorer of the team, but I was the second high scorer. At 77, Ralph Kaplowitz is the oldest living New York Knickerbocker. And 50 basketball seasons later, he says he probably didn't have as much fun playing as he's having now, looking back. When I feel sorry for myself, I take this book and I read it and I see how wonderful I was. <laughs> The Starting Five was produced by Joe Richman. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Coming up after the break, what goes through a woman's mind while swimming for 50 hours straight? All you're hearing is kind of that, that deep, you know, odd kind of sound of your own breath, you know, sort of magnified by the, by the water and the transference of sound in the water. The salty waters of the ocean are always moving. 
You're listening to ReSound. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're talking about the drama of sport. Diana Nyad is one of the best-known long-distance swimmers. In 1975, she swam around the island of Manhattan. It took her eight hours, and she broke the long-distance record. In 1979, she swam from the island of Bimini to Florida, and it took two days nonstop, also a record. When she turned 60, as in years old, she started to train to swim from Cuba to Florida, over 100 miles, a two-and-a-half-day swim. No shark cage, just her and the ocean, uninterrupted for 60 hours. What goes through your mind during that kind of agonizing physical and mental strain? I still don't, outside the ocean, go to the meaning of the universe, the beginnings of the universe. Was there a beginning? Or does time and space exist unto infinity? There was never a beginning. It's always been here. There will never be an end. You know, is, is there something that I don't understand from physics? Are there black holes that surround the edge of the universe and there just isn't anything? There's no more matter once you go to a certain distance. Uh, I, you know, I'm not sure that humankind will ever have the answers to these questions, but there's something about, especially at night, traveling across the quiet of the ocean surface. You're wearing a fogged over pair of goggles. You're turning your head 60 times a minute toward a boat that you're following that's over, in my case, on the left. And I can't really focus on anything. Even when I come in to stop to get some feeding, you know, I can't touch the boat, but I can come over close and reach out and get a sports drink or a, you know, a slab of peanut butter or something. I, I, I look up and just vaguely, vaguely see the outline of a, of, of a friend there, and it's only the voice that I recognize. I don't hear too well while swimming. You know, I've got four or five tight rubber bathing caps over my ears. All you're hearing is kind of that, that deep, you know, odd kind of sound of your own breath, you know, sort of magnified by the, by the water and the transference of sound in the water. And my arms and my kick, you know, slapping and, and kicking along along the surface. I remember back in, you know, my heyday, which was the 70s when I was in my 20s, if I'd, let's say, go on, you know, The Tonight Show, Johnny Carson, the first primary question he would ask is, why? It, it just it looks so uncomfortable. There doesn't look like anything fun about it. Last year, after not swimming for 30-some years, went down to Mexico to do my first training swim. Very cold day, cold water. I was just freezing when I got out, and my friends I was staying with ran me a hot, hot bath. And it took me a while. It took me like three hours to get my body temperature back up. And there was a little five-year-old girl in the house. And she came and she sat on the edge of the tub and she didn't bother me. She saw I was in distress. But just like Johnny Carson, she looked and she was puzzled and finally she asked me, why? You are truly left alone with your own thoughts. And I've had neurologists study me and there are other swimmers who will talk about this too that say that after a while your left brain just doesn't function anymore. Your left brain isn't, you know, thinking those concrete thoughts that we think, the things that control language and math. You're not there anymore. You're over in your dream state, right brain. And it's kind of like you're watching yourself dream. You're having hallucinations. I had a time in 
in uh, Argentina in a long swim years ago back in the 70s where I thought, and I remember it very clearly, I was, I was in the moment, I thought a flock of gulls were dive bombing and, and attacking with their beaks my forehead, like literally ripping, uh, shredding into the rubber of my bathing cap and bringing up blood and tissue from my forehead. And I was in a panic. I was diving under. I was swatting them above me. And I told my people on the boat, you know, help me, help me, you know, get these birds away from me. And I was just, uh, I was in absolute fear. Well, they told me later that they had two choices. They could come over closer with the boat and try to reason with me and tell me that there were no birds at all. Nobody was dive bombing me. Take a look. Put put my hand across my forehead. See, there's no blood. The bathing cap is intact. This was not happening. But that they figured was going to take them too long because I was in a race. I was trying to beat other people to the other end. So they came over and got the, the two oars up from the boat and started swatting these birds. They went along with me. And they yelled at them and they shooed them away. And, you know, in just a real short time, like 10 seconds, they said, oh, Oh, thank God that's over. Don't worry, they're all gone. I said, oh, thank you. Thank you for helping me. And then, of course, I think of my own name. You know, I grew up, I had a father named Aristotle Zenith Nyad. He was a Greek, a Greek-Egyptian actually, but his father was a Greek. And the name Nyad, perhaps you know this already, but it, it means water nymph. In the Greek mythology, the water nymphs that swam in the sea were the Nyads. They protected the seas for the gods. And here I am, this ocean swimmer who became a real Nyad. People have asked me, you know, do you feel more at home in the ocean than out? And I have to say that I do. It's not like it's sheer pleasure to get in and go all those long hours and to feel cold and to feel aches and pains and discomfort to keep on going, 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 going. But when I relax, and again, somehow for me, it's spe especially at nighttime, because think some of these swims I do, like this Cuba swim I want to try this summer, it's probably going to take 60 to 65 hours. That's nonstop. So that ocean is my home for that time, and all the long, long hours and many months of training. When I walk into the sea, I have to say that there's something that envelops me, like here I am, the naiad of the sea going home. So, you know, you go to all these places, but if your body's not happy, if you're struggling with your body, then your mind is not happy either. And it's, you can't let go and free associate. You can't even stay in the moment and count, count off songs. If I sing a, a short ditty that I can remember, that just gets me through about, you know, 40 strokes, it's very comforting. I know the tune, I kind of hear it in my ears, even though I'm, I'm not singing aloud, you know, I'm just singing in my mind. But when I finish that little ditty, I'll say, one. Then I'll sing it again. And I might sing it 5,000 times, literally. And I won't lose count. When I get to like number 3,248, 
Um, I don't lose count after and say, oh, my, wait a second, wait a second, was that 2,458 or 200? No, I don't lose count for 5,000 hits. And it keeps keeps my mind engaged and, I, and it helps me pass the time. And other times, I can't help it. My mind won't focus on something that specific, won't stay in that counting, and it'll go off. It'll go off into the wild blue yonder, so to speak. I would say now, like preparing for the Cuba swim this summer, um, now that I'm getting in shape, you know, the, the body is responding and going these long pool and ocean swims. Oh, I never use the word easily, but, you know, with, with some degree of control and, and feel like I'm ready for it and not pushing over the edge. But each time I get in, I think, what am I going to think about? What am I going to program my mind to think about for all these hours? And it's not easy. And, and that's what gets to me also if I'm in the middle of a swim and I'm having trouble you know occasionally it's a physical thing you feel you feel nauseous and you're you're literally vomiting in the ocean and then you've got to do something to get that stomach under control um, sometimes the shoulders are just you know on fire from so much stress and pressing especially there have been a lot of waves or you know the, the legs can get so tight that you just can barely stay in that supine position anymore the neck from turning the head so many times. There are things you have to, you know, address, get through. But for me, that's nothing compared to the mind. If I'm just, I just can't do it. I just stop during a training swim and say, I'm just, you know, I'm going to go insane if I have to, you know, if I've got to swim five more hours, you know, how am I going to keep my mind, you know, interested in something? That's the hardship, I think. You know, once you've got the body ready, taking the mind through all those hours when you have nothing but your mind, you know, to entertain you is, I, I find it very difficult. I don't think there's any way to train for it. You just get ready and get out there and see if you can make it through. For me, I grew up in Florida, right on the ocean. That Greek father that I mentioned used to wake us up, my brother and sister and I, at three o'clock in the morning some nights. And he'd say, kids, get up quickly, throw on a coat, get on your slippers, we gotta go to the beach, there's a full moon tonight. And it's casting gorgeous shadows across the ocean and light, sparkling light for miles to the horizon. And we'd say, dad, we have school in the morning, we can't get up. And he'd say, this is more important than school. This is larger than life. As he was, he was larger than life, and the ocean was part of it. He had a tremendous love for the sea. And so, it is my home. The ocean is my home. I'm afraid of it, I'm respectful of it, I, I bow to it, and I'm at home in it. Two and a Half Days was produced by Bob Carlson for the show Unfictional on KCRW. In 2013, on her fifth attempt to swim from Cuba to Florida without the aid of a shark cage, Diana Nyad finally made it. It took her 53 hours. She was the first, and so far the last person, to do it. Majesty, I humbly ask you to declare the Olympic Games of 1948 open. Go, Bowie! Yeah! Off the lane to the movies! That's their bend right now, right there, boys. One more race, ready, set. Go down the bend, boys. Standing third of a lane, down. Nice. Sliding on. 
The Winter Olympics are just around the corner, and billions of people will be tuning in to catch them on TV. The organization and skill required to televise the games is enormous, and the planning takes years. One man is responsible for designing the sound you hear during the Olympics. You may think you're just hearing the athletes as they compete, but the fact is that if you were in the room live, it would sound completely different. What you hear, when you hear it, and from where you hear it, that is all by design. This guy's design. I like listening to sports. I can close my eyes, I can hear every single one in my head. It's my belief that people have ingrained in them a memory of certain sounds. And if that sound is not fulfilled, then the mind knows that there's something wrong. There is an expectation of what football sounds like, and it certainly wasn't. Vuvuzelas, the plastic horns whose noise has been driving people mad. Just that continuous hum which actually drowned out all of the meaningful noises. Ah, the sound of the World Cup in South Africa and those damn vuvuzelas. For many people, this was the first time they'd really thought about how sports should sound. But it's what I spend my life thinking and dreaming about. I'm Dennis Baxter, and I designed the sound of sports for television. For nearly 20 years, I've worked exclusively on the Olympics as their staff sound designer and engineer. I decide how to capture each event sonically so that it brings as much drama and excitement into the home as possible. They get away first time. Powell has got a very good start. So did I'm gearing up for London 2012, and it's going to be a big job. I'll be using a team of 350 sound mixers, about 600 sound technicians, and close to 4,000 microphones. Majesty, I humbly ask you to declare the Olympic Games of 1948 open. That was the first Olympics to be televised by the BBC, though fewer than 100,000 homes had television at the time. And the other Swede is just past Nankerville. And it's Ericsson's come through to the finish. Ericsson of Sweden won Strand Slighthouse. As you can hear, there isn't much more than commentary to be heard. My own relationship with the Olympics began in 1992 when I was offered the first full-time job as a sound designer. I went back and listened to every single sport, trying to understand why we were covering the sports the way that we were, what sounds were there, and what sounds were really missing and why. I came from music, I came from a recording studio, and I wanted to apply those techniques and standards to the live world. And one of the first things we implemented in the Olympics was a lot more close miking. This is where you put a microphone as close as possible to the sound source. If you use this technique, you need a lot of microphone because each microphone can only capture a little piece of the whole picture. But you get more detail and definition and a hell of a lot better sound.
the parallel bars and the uneven bars for the women's gymnastics, when you put the microphones that close to the athlete, you hear the flexing of the bar, you hear the breathing, you can even hear the rustling of the clothing. very anti-rock and roll and he goes okay I'll get you a guitar and I was just thrilled well come Christmas morning he got me a guitar and it was an acoustic guitar with a Chet Atkins record and I love Chet Atkins to this day but for the next two years after I got the acoustic guitar all I was trying to do was make it louder and I stumbled across a contact microphone which is a, a device a microphone that you actually can stick right onto the top of the guitar to amplify it it picks up the actual vibrations of the wood and consequently the sound of the guitar. Thirty years later, I'm looking at gymnastics. The balance beam is a synthetic resin type of material that athletes, they balance on, they do somersaults, they do all kinds of routines on top of it. And I'm hearing this balance beam. I say, you know, that has a certain resonance in there that we cannot hear, that someone probably has never heard. Is that a new texture that we should put into the mix? And by the time we put the contact microphones on there, it gave a new level of depth because the contact microphone hears the vibration in the entire bar. You're hitting the athlete on the bar, you're hitting the depth and the movement. Ready. Wimbledon, 2008. Here we go. Play. In 2008, the team responsible for the sound of the Wimbledon men's final was nominated for a BAFTA award. I love atmosphere. That is my job as far as I'm concerned. It's the atmosphere that you generate that makes people be there. I'm Bill Whiston, and I'm the sound supervisor who did the sound for the 2008 Wimbledon Tennis Finals, uh, the gents. That's the sound of Wimbledon. That hush, the bouncing of the ball on the court. That atmosphere is the sort of thing that I am trying to bring into the home. That hush, when everybody is fully expectant of something brilliant to happen.
Fortilov. There's lots of microphones on the court. Basically, the court is covered by uh, a very nice small stereo mic stuck on the back of the court, just above the centerline judge's head. So that occasionally causes an interesting moment when they shout. And there are other microphones dotted around the court, looking back at the crowd, uh, above the crowd, to get a general atmosphere of the inside of the court. Love. Crawford serves. Lines gets it back in the centre. Crawford drives into the net. That's bad. Bad for him. Juice. The way tennis used to be covered way back in the early days was to actually have what was called an apple and biscuit microphone. They'd stick that over the top of the umpire's chair so you got a bit of umpire on it as well as the rather distant smashes of the ball. His service puts him at such an advantage, even when Crawford gets it back, that he's able to come up and volley and put the ball where he likes. Crawford returns the service. Well, that would be the right time to serve your first ace. Nadal now with a second set point. What was brilliant about that particular final was that they let it breathe they didn't talk all over it all the time. I have had a number of people say to me, is there any way that we could have a feed without a commentator? I think that would be something that people would really appreciate. You could add your own commentary then. <laughs> Producers of the old school would tell a commentator to shut up. Um, I don't think many do now. Uh, I'm Barry Davis, and for a few years I've been a commentator on, on various things. When a goal is scored, I would just hold my commentator if I was producing just for five, six seconds, wind up the sound of the crowd, and then let him come in. I used to try and make a, a thought in my mind that if you can't think of what to say, say nothing, which is actually the best policy. But invariably one forgets that from time to time. You get carried away with the emotion. Euro 96, when England played Germany in the semi-final, I can remember very well, four, I would have thought something close to 10 minutes before the teams came out. So much good sound from around the stadium. Just with a few odd observations from the commentator. joining in, the famous, those who've come to support the opposition, and those only well known to their friends.
people may be unaware of what I'm trying to achieve, but if you've got a bunch of people sitting at home going, gosh, wasn't that a, a terrific match? They don't actually say, gosh, wasn't the sound terrific? But you know that is so much part of it. In a football match, what we do nowadays is to have a stereo atmosphere mic and then 12 mics around the pitch, which you fade up and down as the ball moves up and down the pitch. In other words, chasing the ball around so you can get the kicks and the scuffles and the shouting and all that sort of stuff. It's a difficult technique to get across to people who haven't done it before. It's anticipating where the ball's going to go. At every Olympic Games, uh, I try to ratchet up the excitement and entertainment value. Uh, and certainly winter sports are fun because you're trying to convey a sense of speed and motion. I've always enjoyed the sound of bobsled. In Vancouver, there were 44 cameras. At each camera position, there was a distinctly different oral perspective. And I was trying to put the viewer, the listener, in the place of the athlete. And I made every camera position a sound zone. Some people may say that 284 microphones is a bit excessive, but you have to remember that every camera perspective, every visual perspective for the viewing audience has a different sound texture and a different sound uh, color. like a piece of music that if you just sit and listen to the crowd, you hear like how it swells and dives and peaks and then suddenly bursts. It sounds to me like an orchestra. I'm Rob Noakes. I'm a sound effects recordist for movies in Hollywood. I get hired by the movie studios to record sounds specifically for their movie. For example, if you have a specific sports movie, be it horse racing, hockey, figure skating, football, basketball, they bring me in to capture the essence of the crowds and the game itself. The sound of the basketballs, uh, the sound of horses' hooves, horses breathing, players tackling each other, all that kind of good stuff. So they bring me in so that they can recreate the feeling of being really into that event when you see the movie the game of their lives. It was the greatest team in any sport I have ever seen. The Game of Their Lives was a football movie about the 1950 U.S. men's national soccer team that was competing in the World Cup in Rio in Brazil. And uh, they went on to beat England, which was shocking at the time because England was the best team on the planet and America was probably one of the worst teams. I was asked to go down and record football crowds for the movie. In North America, we don't have football crowds that are that exciting and rambunctious. I went to Brazil and I recorded 
football games, I went to Morumbi Stadium to record a game between Brazil and Bolivia, and the crowd was insane. I would just, you know, move around the stadium and listen for pockets of chanting and cheering or loud fans and listening for the energy. They are out of their minds singing in huge 10-foot drums. If you have people in the loop group, you know, actors, they're not gonna go that deep and scream like a fan in an audience will. It's amazing, when you can recreate with real people that energy, that's the way to do a sports movie. Sound puts you in the actual environment and it really does create an emotional response. My name is uh, Gordon Dirty. I am the studio audio director at Electronic Arts Canada, specifically the sports video game end of the company. So we make games like uh, FIFA, hockey, soccer, American football, golf, pretty much the entire range of sports. We're taking a scientific approach to a very emotional process, which is, you know, let's reanalyze how crowds work. Instead of this big wash of sound where everything's happening at once, there's that guy in the corner there whose face is painted purple and he's got his team shirt on and he's got a big drum and he's trying to get his corner of the stadium all riled up. And maybe a wave starts around the stadium and maybe it doesn't. So, you know, our future push is let's get into actually modeling how crowds behave and how these different particles of sound actually interact to create a large crowd. We work a lot at how can we keep improving the actual game experience. We try to bring it down as authentic as possible, but then we have to go beyond because normally you would not hear you know, the details of the sound on the pitch on TV, but as a gameplay, you expect to hear the kicks. For this last South African World Cup, we hired people in South Africa to record the crowds. We have to build the game quite a few months in advance of the event. Uh, we actually had the crowds come back from South Africa, and I went down to one of the audio sound guys' rooms, and I kept hearing this beehives going on. What is this thing? This is driving me bonkers. You know, can we not turn that thing off or down? He goes, no, no, this is this Vuvuzela thing. It's, it's part of the thing that you have to have this or it's not authentic. So we actually put a mute button on, finally, to say that you can mute it or, or lower the volume of it. And then when the actual uh, World Cup started in South Africa, people were saying, you know, how come the TV channels can't just put a mute button like they do in the actual video game? Diving is another one of my favorite sports. It's a great example of really trying to isolate the micro sounds of the sport. 
you can really separate the above sounds in the swimming hall and the below sounds, the underwater sound. It really conveys the sense of, of focus and the sense of isolation of the athlete. We have microphones on the handrails as the divers walk up. You can hear their hands, you can hear their feet, you can hear them breathing. microphone at the bottom of the pool under the water. When the athlete goes under the water, we shift the perspective to just them and the underwater sound. You hear the bubbles. You get the complete sense of isolation, the complete sense of the athlete all alone. That was an excerpt from Sound of Sport produced by Peregrine Andrews for Falling Tree Productions and BBC Radio 4. I think he hurt Joe Frazier. I think Joe is hurt. Angie Dundee, Ali's trainer right next to me, is saying it. You may hear him. Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! The heavyweight champion is taking the mandatory ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. <laughs>